Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Highly Functional. This is Brianne Schoen, and I am joined today by performance psychologist Tim Silvestri. This is the second time I have brought Tim on this podcast, and today we talked about failure, and more specifically, how to reframe failure, how to change our story to get different outcomes, essentially the outcomes we want. So whether you are an athlete, a clinician, or a coach, I think you'll find this conversation highly valuable. So let's tune in. Tim, thank you for joining me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. It's still uh, moderate in the Northeast and fall foliage is kicking in high gear. So we're pretty psyched around here. Good time of year for sure. Yeah. Well, this is the second time I've gotten you on. Um, For those who have not listened to the first episode with you, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell them who you are. Yeah, so uh, I'm Tim Silvestri. I'm a psychologist. I consider myself a performance psychologist. And I say that because I work uh, not as much, but I do work with uh, dancers and uh, uh, actors and um, visual artists and writers and stuff like that, not just athletes. But dominantly, I work with athletes. I love working with OCR athletes. Uh, I, I, I rarely charge OCR athletes because they're not million-dollar athletes yet. Someday they will be, and then I'll charge you all. But for now, um, I'm a pretty good price just because I think it's fun working with you all. And uh, so I tend not to charge, um, but sometimes my time runs short. But um, so a performance psychologist, I'm, I'm a 52-year-old single dad of uh, identical twin girls um, and uh, all of their 30 to 70 friends. <laughs> I'm the kind of go-to resident dad for all of them. Uh, I'm the director of a counseling center, which is a pretty demanding job and, and can, um, you know, 2 a.m. phone calls trying to make a life or death decision of whether to hospitalize someone or not. Um, I am an OCR athlete, though I've been injured uh, for the past year now. Uh, and so I've been kind of on the shelf. But before that, I had a couple good wins. Um, I've won at all uh, different levels. Uh uh, in the 50 plus age group bracket. Um, and I don't know, that's pretty good for now. (laughs) Yeah, I'll, I'll leave it at that. Very thorough intro. We'll take it. (laughs) But I, I think with that and, and, you know, if you, if you walk on with someone, Oh, the thing I left out is I'm also living my best life. I'm, I'm happy. I'm energized all day, every day. I'm like, it's my best life. And, and I've, self-authored that out of a ton of failure. And we're going to talk about failure, but uh, you know, when you hire on with someone, you, sh- you should make sure they walk the walk. You know, if, if you all have seen uh, Brianne's videos, she can do a muscle up, which is completely badass. Uh, and I'm, I'm jealous beyond anything. Uh, and I've been working on, I think I have the strength. My form just sucks, but, um, but, you know, Brianne walks a walk. Um, I would say most people would agree I, I walk the walk. And that's important when you're judging who, sh- who you should hire on to. Uh, because now not everyone who walks a walk can, can explain it. So you want both if you're going to hire someone. Uh, can, do they have the info? Can they explain it? And do they walk the walk? And, you know, that, that's, that's the pretense of my uh, intro, not, not any kind of narcissism or bragging. Yeah. And I think that's a kind of a good way to, to put it as far as walking the walk, especially when we talk about what we want to dive into today, which is failure. Um, cause we all experience failure at some point in our lives. Um, usually more often than we do success. Um, so I want to dive into that and just kind of start with the whole concept of like most people, especially early on in life, view failure as a bad thing. And it becomes like this, thing that we need to overcome in order to actually like have success in our life. Um, so what, like, where does this all come from as far as, as starting our lives with viewing failure as a bad thing that we want to avoid? Yeah, I'm going to start biggest picture. If, if you are a philosopher, uh, then, then you would know that basically that discipline can be summed up in one word, which is, um, uh, Oh my gosh, now I'm blanking on the word. Um, Oh, subjectivity. And uh, 
you know, so the words we use uh, or the things that the way we describe something creates the subjective reality that we exist in. And so we really want to check in with the words we use because they are creating a subjective reality. And that is the nature of all philosophy. And, you know, philosophy is a pretty big time uh, discipline, if you ask me. Um, so when we use this term, we're, we're taught this, uh, uh, this or that, right? Uh, success or failure. You've either succeeded or you failed. And we learn that very early on. It's in our culture, it's in our language. And the, the real question is, is there any truth to this word? Is there any truth to that uh, concept? Or is the whole concept just irrelevant and moot? Um, and I would say the concept of failure doesn't exist. It, it, it's a word that should have never been created. It's a concept that isn't reality. And yet, because we use it and we frame our realities as success or failure, then it shapes everything that comes after that. Um, now, there's other alternatives we could use and we could get into that, but, um, but it's in our English language, it's in our lexicon and, and therefore it shapes our reality. And then it's a self-fulfilling prophecy from then on. It creates the subjective reality that we exist in. And then we start viewing things as failures. How do we, you, you mentioned kind of framing, um, how we frame things, how do we go about then reframing that whole idea of, or even getting that word about word out of our vocabulary? Yeah, or using it in very precise ways. So I'm going to probably use the word just because it's so natural to use in other ways. And your audience would be like, well, I thought it wasn't a word. So why is he using it? You know, and, and it's like, I'm, I'm probably going to use it today. Uh, for example, um, we could say failure isn't you failed. It, 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 you could say there is a failure to execute on some level. But if we use it in that uh, sentence, then we could say, well, then let's start thinking about how to do better at execution. Um, and then we have to think, well, what makes us ex execute? So rather than failure, what we want to switch to is a basic process that I use all the time with my folks, which is knowledge creates the process that creates the outcome. So as soon as we look at an outcome, which is, it's not success or failure, an outcome happened. Um, if we're not happy with that outcome, or we would like to author a different outcome, which again is self-authoring, I'm not a failure, I didn't author it yet. If I want to author a different outcome, I need to change my process, but to change my process, I need more knowledge. So knowledge creates process, creates outcome. Um, there's other elements. It's not just that simple, but uh, if you don't have that down, there's no point in talking. That, that's like 80% of the pie. You know, there's no point in talking about the other stuff uh, because they just won't account for as much of the, what's called variance or the stuff that makes up something. And I think that that knowledge concept is why it's important that um, like we be willing to ask for help to find someone to help us. Cause I know like me personally, especially growing up, it's always just like, I just like, I know how I want things done. I want to do it myself and this, that, and the other, I know, like I'm very organized. I'm just going to do it. And it's taken me let's see, I'm 40 now. So 30, 38 probably years of my life to finally get to the point of like, it's okay to ask for help if I don't know the answers to something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and when we talk about really achieving what you want, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's kind of upsetting. It's, it's one of the things that most performance people don't talk about, which is if you're not a nice person, if you're not coachable, if you don't have an open heart, uh, if you can't make friends, you know, you, you're not going to have the level of support that you need. Um, and for those of us who are, are out there who are kind of recovering jerks, and let's talk back about failure, you know, whatever failures I've had throughout my lifetime, it was because either I wasn't approachable in some way, or there was something happening interpersonally or something. And and, you, you know, you really have to fix that stuff. It's personhood first. And, um, 
you have to you have to be able to warrant other people approaching you and and that's partly being a good person um you can be a jerk and make it but it's going to cost you somewhere somehow and uh usually you'll crash and burn um being a jerk so part of that in that you know to be a kind warm person does help you to get coached it helps you to have people one, if you're a jerk, you probably won't ask questions because you, you're insulated. Not that you were a jerk. You were an independent person. But, um, but part of, I think, part of what prevents people from reaching out is what you're saying, which is you were a highly conscientious person and, and you kind of did it on your own. The other part of it, though, is that some people just aren't, they're not pers- interpersonally adept enough to have people respond. So either they don't ask questions, which is more you, because you're answering your own questions, or they do ask questions, but there's no one there to give them answers because they're kind of a jerk, which isn't you. You know, you fell on the first part of that, you know, Uh, but team is everything. If you don't have a team, if you don't, if you're not reaching out to people, you're just not going to make it. You can't. It's, there's too much to know. There's too much to do. I'm I'm not even sure how much you have, um, done work with here as far as the neurophysiology side of things, but, um, like just thinking about movement pattern skills, like let's go to my muscle ups and how many misses I've had, how many hundreds of videos I have of me missing, um, and then finally getting it. And I know like when we have those constant patterns of misses, we start setting in these bad patterns in our brain and we have to retrain those or like recreate new patterns. Um, how much work have you done into kind of that aspect of things and being able to coach people like past that part of it? Yeah, well, there, there's two elements of that, which are, are uh, extremely different. One is once you get it, the whole world can change and, and like you get it then, and once you get that feeling, right. Um, we can map in bad habits. And we have to then unmap them. But I, you know, I remember uh, BJ Jones talking about um, on a podcast. I, I don't know BJ personally, but I, this is a good example of it. He talked about how much he trained perfect form, and he he failed, failed, failed. You, you know, two years, and then at one point it just came together and he got it, and it was like this watershed moment. And I often hear that with. I remember with myself like doing an Irish table, which I, I'm short, I'm five, five. So I struggled with that. Like at some point, once I got it, it was like, there was, there was never not getting it again because I just realized to power through it or something. So yeah, your question is totally legit and, and you might have to overcome bad habits and that's mapped in, take, take addictions, right? Like you have this whole mental template that at 420 every day, I smoke potter, not that you know, pot's necessarily bad, but if at 520 every day you did heroin, like at 520, your body wants heroin. You have to unmap that. At the same time, sometimes when we get it, it's like, boom, you get it and you, you never look back. It's a watershed moment. Yeah. And both yeah. make sense neurophysiologically. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Definitely. But with uh, real quick, and we don't have to get into it now, but I do want to mention like with the neurophysiology, what, what we can talk about is Two, at some point in, in this conversation, uh, just what's the neurophysiology of failure? Why is it so ubiquitous? And I, I would kind of, could I just set a couple like quick statements up front that'll also kind of frame some of this? Yeah, absolutely. So let me just drop a, a three or four right off the bat, which is um, one, Success is an irrational act. And I think when we, we're so prone to talk about success failure, like success is some great thing that we should all want. And I don't think anyone's ever taught young how irrational success actually is. And I'll give you some neurophysiology if we have time, but I just want to assert that success is an irrational act. Um, uh, Two, um, failure is the one constant. So if it's, you know, it'd be like talking about skin all the time. Oh, what's Tim like? Well, he has skin. Oh, okay. 
is he a good guy, a bad guy? Well, he has skin. Like I get it. He has skin. All humans have skin. It's the, it's the constant, right? We don't have to talk about it. So why are we talking about failure if it's the one constant? Um, uh, three, when you listen to successful people, if you really interviewed someone successful, they are obsessed with talking about failure. That's all they want to talk about. They don't want to talk about their successes. They want to spend hours talking about their failure. When you, when you meet someone who hasn't succeeded, they will hide failures. They'll shy away from them. They feel shame and they try to push their small wins out there. But really, there's this whole sea of failure that they're kind of like, don't look over in that corner of the room. Look at this thing over here. Um, so there's quirky things that we do, and that prevents us from ever talking about failure. Uh, but really, you'll know a successful person because they'll just want to talk about failure nonstop. And for me, you know, I went from doing one pull up to, uh, you know, winning some races like Palmerton and others. And it's like I failed for four years. Like, just think of that, how, how much you have to overcome to fail and be and terrible, just absolutely horrific at what you do for four years. That's a lot of days in a row. Uh, as director, I was terrible as a director. I thought I knew leadership. I trained leadership. I read every le leadership book. I was ready. I landed. Utter failure. Terrible. Uh, for two years, maybe even two and a half. I don't know. Probably not three, but whatever. That's a long time to just be terrible at something. Um, but if you know that failure is the one constant, um, it makes you build team. It makes you ask questions. It makes you tolerate that. And that's the point of it is, can you tolerate it? Can you sit with it? Can you normalize it? Can you accept it as the one constant? Um, and, and one last one I'll throw out there, just my fourth big one. I say to my athletes all the time, the mountain always wins. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you can excel. So if we change this from success, failure, or win-lose, if we change the narrative to the universe always wins, like I'm going to die, right? Uh, the mountain always wins. That, that sucker is going to shred me. It's going to hurt. The sooner I accept that, the sooner I can excel. And people are like, I'm going to beat the mountain this time. No, you're not. The mountain will win you will be shredded, right? There's no way around that. It'll hurt. It'll shred you. It'll take your soul. The question is, can you excel? And um, so those four things I think are important starting points. And I don't know if any of those trigger any thoughts for you, but all the work you do with athletes and all, I'm sure you run into that stuff all the time. Absolutely. The thing that comes to mind first with you mentioning those is like, how many times we see whether it's a successful athlete or business person or you name it on whatever news article, it's like a lot of times we don't look deeper to see like those failures that they have. We just see those wins that we have had and they look like overnight successes and it looks like it's easy. And I think a lot of times we forget to look at that bigger story behind it, the 10 years of hard work to get to that point and everything. And I think that's why so many people get so frustrated. They quit, they give up because it's like, oh, I'm a year into this and I still can't do this. Okay. I'm like, I'm not good enough. Um, and I think that's, I feel like that kind of, a lot of people just, just don't see that deeper picture. For sure. They, they don't. And we don't have, you know, people don't ask successful people about it. What was it like to how many times have you heard a reporter or someone say, what was it like to wake up every day for 10 years and be mediocre or terrible a lot of the time? What was that like? Right. It, it's like you don't ever hear that question. And so no one ever answers it. Yeah. Um, there you go. You know, I, I mean, it, it's like but. If, if you if you really let someone talk, they really will talk about how badly they sucked at something for a long time. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, do you want to dive into a little bit of why success is an irrational act? 
I I kind of do actually. I like that concept. So let me let me outline two quick. So one of the things I do a lot for folks and and why someone might request a meeting with me specifically is because I'll I'll give you the why. I'll give you the neurophysiology behind something, which is why I love your work because you'll give them the mechanics behind it. You won't just you know, you'll tell them why and how the machine works, right? So, and the better your why, the better the how to fix it, right? And so people with unclear whys don't do a good job fixing it. So there's two elements of neurophysiology that make why, uh, make success in irrational action. Um, one is your frontal lobe worries and problem solves. That's, that's the adaptive and adaptation is a physiological change in a species to ward off some environmental pressure, right? So we created this frontal lobe to problem solve and worry. And, and that is our, what's called the default mode. It's, it's our default mode. You have to switch out of problem solving and worrying to get into performance mode. And you do that by focusing. Um, if you're not focused, you're thinking and worrying. So worrying or um, being cautious or being reasonable is the default mode, which makes success impossible because to, you'd have to dream big. You'd have to dream unreasonable, right? Lady Gaga had a dream about becoming bigger than Madonna. That's unreasonable. And the, everything in her brain would be like, would shut that down. So our default mode there is that. The second default mode is an energy system, which is you're either in energy mode throwing fuel into the mitochondria in your cell, powerhouse of cell, or you're storing fuel in a vacuole, which is an organelle that stores molecules of fuel. And now you're in what I call conservation mode. And conservation mode is the default of our body. We want to conserve energy. We don't want to expend it. So our brains kind of want us to be still, not moving forward and worrying rather than doing something audacious, right? Those two are default mode. So if you think about a big success, it's an irrational act, right? Because our brains want us still and worrying. <laughs> and, and that's when we talk about failure, we're really talking about being stagnant and kind of being still and worrying, right? Um, and so failure is a more rational action to take, to be mediocre, to live a so-so life. <laughs> And, and my goal is to help people live their best life. And that's hard because people will go so far and then they, they suddenly will get nervous and they'll stop and they won't live their best life. And I'm here telling everyone, like, you can live your best life. This isn't a sham. I'm not even charging people half the time when I'm working. It's like, not like I'm trying to make money off of you, you know? And they'll often stop short. <laughs> It's like, ah, people. Um, you really can, but you have to fight the neurophysiology and, and the irrationality of success. Is that also why it's so easy for us to like get in our heads and overthink things? Um, or is that something different that's happening? No, it is. You're so if you, I think I mentioned this in the last one, I don't know, but if you flex, you're, you are, we have systems and subsystems. If you, flex, you're pumping muscles or blood into your skeletal muscular system. If you eat, then your digestive system becomes dominant. It's one or the other. One's dominant or the other is dominant. Well, your brain is the same way. Either blood flow is dominant in your frontal lobe or blood flow shifting back to make your dog brain, that middle brain, mammalian brain dominant. Your, your middle brain, your dog brain is your uh, performance brain. And if that is activated, you will perform at very high levels. If it's not activated, you'll switch back to default mode and think a lot. So basically, the great thing is your brain's so dumb. Your brain is just this dumb mechanical organ. The great thing is just by focusing on details, you will shift blood flow to your dog brain and you'll be in an extreme state of flow and performance. So okay. when I'm running up a mountain, I'll look at pebbles on the ground. I'll, I'll see details, corners of leaves. If you're right now, if you're listening to this, just look around your room and see details, not a vague panorama, not some vague awareness. You're in a room, 
but see the details of the room and now you're in a state of flow. It's that easy. That's really interesting. <laughs> Especially when I think of like, well, actually, let me ask you this. Is that a good way to like, maybe you're just kind of like trying to process or think of a new idea. Like, is that kind of a good way even just to kind of get into that flow thought as far as like looking at like focusing on those details of things? Yeah. And to do that, you, you can do a number of things like, uh, so for, for, well, for creativity, you're talking about creativity in some ways, right? Like writing or creating. Yeah. Not, not like doing a bench press. Correct. My mind, my mind's shifted for on me. (laughs) Yeah. And so what happens is, um, I mean, bench press, you want to set it up and you want to get all your mechanics straight. Right. But uh, and then you want to lift and that's a moment of focus. Make sure your mechanics are straight. And then the moment of looking at the spot on the bar is precise spot and then you bench press and you'll be in a state of flow. Uh, for creativity, um, one, you need enough energy. So uh, rest and work are opposites. If you're at rest, you're not working. If you're, at, if you're working, you're not at rest. But work and recovery are complements. So if you're, if you're in a fully recovered state, you can work really hard. If you're in a fully depleted state, you can't work very hard. And the first thing you lose when you're under recovered is, is creativity. So you won't even have a creative impulse if you're under recovered, which is why your macros have to be spot on, which is why you can't do soul crushing workout after soul crushing workout. Um, if you're recovered enough that you actually can focus and create, uh, then you want to you want to uh, make sure as many things in your environment are already edited out so you don't have to edit them out. I think one of the best things I, I use personally is I listen to Assassin's Creed Radio on Pandora, b- video game music, because video game music is as complex as, uh, as cr- classical and jazz, except um, so it lights up all different areas of your brain. But it doesn't rise and fall in volume like classical music does. It gets loud and soft and there's no singing or anything. And so video game music can, ed- if you're listening to it, it edits out everything and now you're not distracted. If, if The more you have to edit out with your brain, the more likely you'll be distracted. So those are tricks to get in a state of flow for creativity. But usually it's, you're not being creative because you're too darn tired to be creative. Which makes sense, yeah. That's why most writers will write from like, like I do all my, I, I got up at uh, four today. I was at my computer by four 30 and I was hammering through a bunch of my creative work and I stopped by eight 30. So I, I had my creative stuff in the books by eight 30 and then I lifted and went on my day and got my daughter breakfast and did phone calls and stuff like that. Yeah. Same way. It's like afternoons kind of my busy work time. Cause I'm done thinking. <laughs> For sure. Your cortisol levels are the highest in the morning and then they drop throughout the day. Cortisol has been falsely talk about improper words. Cortisol is known as a stress hormone, which is utterly ludicrous. It's not a stress hormone. It's a GSD hormone. Get stuff done hormone. Um, and running from a Jaguar is maybe stressful, but you're getting something done. You know, and so it's a really, so your cortisol levels are highest in the morning and lowest in the evening. Uh, but uh, there's other things happening, circadian rhythm, but um, you do get a second burst of wind in the evening, even though your cortisol levels are low. But anyway, you want to use your creative work in the morning. That's when you're at, and that's when you have the most GSD hormones. In Very cool. Let's take a quick break now to talk about Naboso technology. I absolutely love training barefoot for the power it gives me. But when I use Naboso, it really ups my game even more. Whether I am using the Naboso mat or using the Naboso insoles inside my shoes, that feedback it provides me onto my feet really enhance my performance. I would love for you to test out Naboso for yourself. Head over to naboso-technology.com to check out all of their amazing products. And if you use code GETYOURFIX at checkout, you can also save 10%. You can also head over to getyourfixpt.com partners 
and check out Naboso and all my other great partners. Now let's get back to the conversation. Looking at some, some of the notes you sent me and just kind of one of the statements I really love, and that's the toughest challenges require you to admit failure. Um, and I think like one, that's so true. It, like they absolutely do. Um, but I think kind of like you mentioned earlier too, I think some of that's also why people just kind of stay in that mediocre state because they either, they don't want that challenge or they don't want to admit failure to themselves. Well, it, the thing I posted today on my Instagram is this, which is um, your bot, your brain doesn't process by facts. I wish. I mean, man, would that be easy? Uh, your brain processes through stories. And so once we learn a story, we're beholden to that story. Mm-hmm. No matter how many facts overturn it, it doesn't matter. We're beholden to the story that we learn, not facts. So think about it. We're all beholden to the story of who we've been because that's what we know. I'm not an athlete. I'm not a top tier athlete. Um, you know, whatever it is, our stories about ourselves are all past. And it's like, are you going to choose to listen to this story of the past or are you going to really be beholden to the story of who you will be? And for me to succeed, I had to, I had to listen to the story of me, you know, getting a podium at a Spartan. That didn't happen yet and had no chance of happening, right, on that day. Um, But I said in the next four years, I'm going to self-author and I'm going to podium. And then I executed, which is another whole topic, but how to execute. But not just believe in yourself. You have to actually learn enough information to create the process to create the outcome. So... I find that the number one limiter of people is they're beholden to the story of the past, not beholden to the story of the future. And in fact, I'm working, I I worked with two athletes this year. One I just started working with. This guy's a beast. I mean, I think he's going to catapult onto the scene on the elite pro heat. He's been doing age group and he's wins age group, but his fitness level is so far beyond that. And yet he doesn't, put himself in a category of those elites. And it's like, if I could just bust them through, which I know I can, he's like, he's an easy one for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> he's going to perform at these ridiculous levels. Another person we worked with, she just burst onto the scene again. And it was like, she had to go up against big ones like Lindsay and whatnot. And how do you help someone believe they can when this is Lindsay Webster? Like, who are you to think you can compete against Lindsay Webster? You know, give me a break. Sit down and be quiet. Like, you're not Lindsay Webster. But yet, she can. And, you know, to, to do that shift is an act of courage because you're really buying into the story of your future, not the story of the past. How do we go about shifting that story? Well, for one, I, I walk at, I created a, a stage model and I walk athletes through the entire stage model and, and that frames it for them. So I'll often work with athletes. Let's frame the big picture. Let's apply it to you personally. And then we'll, uh, we'll personalize it. Like, where do you fit in the big picture? And then let's apply it. So I present a stage model and then it talks about the identity level, which is the third stage to the elite stage to the championship stage and then legacy. And it's like, once they see where they're at and they sat and, and when I describe it, they're like, oh my God, you're in my head. How are you doing that? Like you're describing the exact thoughts I have all the time. And yet I didn't tell you any of that. And they realize, oh, there's, there must be something human about this. And it's like, yep, there is. And here's what you're going to sound like when you get to this stage. And here's what you're going to sound like when you get to this stage. So why don't we just cut to the chase and get to those stages? <laughs> We're going to do it anyway. Why don't we just like do it more quickly? Right. And so that's my job is to do what they would have done anyway without me, but help them do it way more quickly, you know, and that's fun to do. So part of it is really uh, setting, setting that 
but viewing outcomes simply as evidence of process, evidence of knowledge. And that's what I'd like to most pick apart today when we're talking about failures. None of this is failure. It's simply, you have to own the truth. I'd rather you focus on truth than failure. The truth is you suck. Okay, I sucked. That was the truth, right? But that means my outcome is not what I want, which means my process was not effective yet, which means I need more knowledge. So kudos to Rich Ryan, who was my coach. I hit him up early on. I picked someone. He walks the walk. He's a, a champ, right? Um, and uh, he's just a beast. And I'm like, dude, you got to show me. And I hired him as my coach. And he taught me a lot. He taught me just about everything I know. That created a better process. And then suddenly podium started happening. Not suddenly. Four years later, podium started <laughs> he didn't. He didn't coach me the whole four years. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Does any of that resonate with you? It does. And I love the, you know, you've mentioned it several times. And I think you'll mention the first podcast we did as well, as far as that process focus versus outcome focus. And I think it is so much more important. Like, yes, we all have our goals. We have those milestones we want to hit, but it truly is that process that gets us there that we need to focus on. Which comes from knowledge, mm-hmm. which folks, that's why you reach out to brand. You know, that's why you reach out to experts because they already have the knowledge. You already have that knowledge and, and you just speed up the pace. Now, if you gave someone 30 years, they could learn all that knowledge on their own, but why wait 30 years when someone could do it in two weeks? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like ludicrous. So I don't do anything without consulting experts. I don't, I don't do anything without, I'm launching a couple courses. We're doing a lot of big stuff that we're trying to save lives. What did I do immediately? I, I brought on members of a team and it, it's my work that I've created over 20 years, but I immediately share it with others and build a team and make it the team's, not mine. Um, Rich is going to help me put out the, the stage model. And my business partner, Kim Kelty, is amazing. She's, she's doing it too. And they know their stuff. They, they know so much that I don't know. And that just makes for a better process. So if I succeed at this and we do save lives, it's as much to give credit to them as me, even though, yeah, technically I created some of the concepts, but it doesn't matter. It, it's sharing it together so that we all together know more and therefore create a better process. Yeah. Something I've been working on more recently is who, not how, just really thinking about like who knows this stuff better than I do. And rather than me trying to figure it all out, because like you said, I can get it done in two weeks if I have someone else help me or do it rather than figuring it out and wasting a whole lot of time. Here's another analogy I'll use, but this is a problem people always want. And I'll use the analogy of people want to be in the room. Um, People are like, I want to be a successful athlete, meaning I want to be in that room with those athletes. I want to be a successful entrepreneur meaning I want to be in that room with those people, whatever those people are, right? And it's like, you know what? You're never going to be in the room if you don't know as much or more than those people who are already in the room, because why would there, there's only eight seats at the table. Like, why would they invite you to occupy one of those seats if you don't know as much or more, because then you can't contribute to the conversation. So why would they need you at the table for the conversation? So again, if you want to be in that room, then know as much or more than anyone in that room. And the only reason I get invited into rooms, and I've had com- you know conversations this year and been invited in the rooms of people who have podiumed at uh, North American championships and podiumed at world championships this year, but I know more or at least as much as the people in the room. That's how I got invited in and any of you Anybody can gain knowledge, anybody. And therefore anyone can create a process that will lead to great outcomes. Now, no, I'm not, I'm too tall to be a jockey, a horse jockey, I'm five five, but I'm too short to be in the NBA, right? So there are certain rooms I can't enter because of my height. I just don't have 
the right height, right? I won't beat Michael Phelps at swimming. But OCR is a sport that a 5'5 guy can win world championships, I believe. I don't think height is a huge advantage in our sport. So um, it's really down to knowledge, process, process and outcome. Mm-hmm. And everyone wants to be in the room. And they fight and they try to stick out their chest and they try to be something and prove themselves. No, you can't prove yourself. You either know as much or more or you don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> Absolutely. And what a beautiful thing. We all can do that. And yet, oh, we're so limited by our stories of who we are. I'm not an athlete. I'm not this. I'm not an elite athlete. I'm not Lindsay Webster. I'm not Ryan Atkins. No, you used to not be as good as Ryan Atkins, but you can be. Right? Yeah. Uh, insane. Unless if height matters or something like that. I can't be LeBron James. I feel like what can happen though, too, is like someone can, and, and I guess I'm speaking from personal experience here, but it's like, you know, you're a good athlete, you know, you're at a certain level. And then you start competing with these other people who, you know, are at a higher skill level. And then it's like, then imposter syndrome hits and you're like, but that's, I'm not that person. Like I shouldn't be here. And I think there's this dichotomy sometimes that goes on between like, I know I'm good, but am I really that good? Right. And every time you step into the next stage, and that's why I developed the stage model, there's six stages in my model, but every time you move to the next stage, you kind of recapitulate the whole thing. So now you're like, well, I'm, I'm good, but I'm not that good. And then you get to the next level and you're like, well, I'm a, a leader pro, but I'm not like a world champion. And then you get to a world champion and you're like, well, I'm a world champion, but I'm not like a 10 time world champion like Pete Sampras was or something. Like, I'm not one of the all-time greats, right? And you can do it at every level, all because of the neurophysiology, which is your brain is beholden to a story, not facts. Or we believe success, failure, rather than knowledge, process, outcome. We believe talent, not knowledge, process, outcome. All these things create this subjective reality, which is back to philosophy. The world is, your world is subjective. That's the first premise of philosophy. And so make sure your knowledge base and your approach is tight. Make sure the words you use is tight. These aren't semantics. You know, it, it's real. I do knowledge process outcome and that I'm going to have a better outcome than you all, than you talent outcome people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. What for, to start wrapping it up for like people who are just kind of not necessarily stuck in that failure mindset, but just are kind of in that, like, not sure how to get past the, like, hating that they fail at things, not, and haven't broken past that point yet. Like, what are some things they can start doing to kind of reframing it for themselves or kind of getting past that point to like really get to that process focus type mindset? So the initial, you're talking you're talking the initial athlete or the initial person? What, what kind of person are you talking about? <laughs> My question was all over the place. I'll give you that. Um, so just for. Like, so, are we talking how to fix this more yes. generally? Yes. Let me give you a couple of the keys for, for big time success. Um, and this goes for beginner, middle, elite. Uh, one is again, knowledge process outcome said enough about that. The second one we didn't mention, which is huge is mission. Research clearly shows that without mission and mission is defined as an aspiration. Plus you have to link it to something bigger than yourself. An aspiration or a goal is not enough. It has to be linked to something bigger than yourself because that's what fuels you long-term. So my mission is, was to become kind of a, you know, elite level or whatever competitive uh, age grouper at the 50 plus. But I wanted to do that because I thought it would give me more access to athletes who are suffering, who I think maybe we could save lives here, putting the neurophysiology, but I knew I had to walk the walk. Otherwise, why would someone listen to me? Um, so my, when I, if, if I'm between me and another guy charging up a mountain in a race, 
you damn well right I'm going to beat that guy up the mountain because if not, someone else dies. And I believe someone else might die because I didn't fulfill a mission. Um, there's a lot riding on me charging up that mountain versus some guy who, someone in my age group, he's just a raging narcissist. Um, and he's good and, and he'll throw elbows. He'll do kind of crap stuff. But it's like, yeah, if you're just feeding your ego, you're vulnerable. You just are. Um, so mission, aspiration plus link to something bigger than yourself, that's huge. Uh, and most people don't do that. I think the third big one is, again, subjectivity. What story are you buying into? The story of the past or the story you're writing now for the future? And if you can really just understand that facts aren't going to sway, facts aren't it. It's, it's the subjective reality you're creating. Um, what should happen eventually, if let's say I was successful and I could, and the top 20 in the world somehow worked with me, signed on with me, and we put all this into action, what would be the outcome? Someone still has to win, right? What should happen is number one through 20 should fall within like 30 to 60 seconds of each other. We're talking a three to four hour race, right? Because they should, everyone's fitness level is at such a high level that really we're down to psychology when you're talking about, especially top five or top 10. So if their fitness level is at the same level and their psychology is at the same level, they should all finish within 30 to 60 seconds of each other. That should be the outcome, right? That I'd want for this, for people I work with. Technically someone does have to win. <laughs> so I think those are the starting points is create your mission, aspiration plus uh, link to something bigger. Create your future story and um, know that failure is the one constant. It's really knowledge process outcome. If you can just do those three things, the rest will kind of start making sense to what to do next. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Because now you have the foundation. The rest of it just starts becoming intuitive. It's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think just, you mentioned the mission part of it, just having that in itself kind of helps direct everything in your life. Like if you know what you're looking to accomplish and where you want to go, like everything, like all decisions should be easy. <laughs> right. And think about the work you do. Now you, you're recording this podcast and you have to edit it. And this is all time out of the day, right? I got, I took three days vacation this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I'm up at four 30 and I'm working till eight 30 in the morning, just trying to get this stuff going and all that. Um, why'd I do all that? Because I'm trying to save lives. Like, so think about it. Like what, what's what what is how is your work linked to something bigger than yourself who are you trying to save or what impact are you trying to have yeah that's a great question um no one's ever asked well i should say no one's asked me that no one on podcasts has asked me that um ultimately like it's part of the reason my podcast is called highly functional like i want to help create highly functional humans and athletes um i I was an athlete in high school that was in college, stuck in the injury cycle. I've gone through all those frustrations. And ultimately, like, I understand now that people don't have to live in that frustrating life all the time. They can do what they want to do without getting injured all the time. And that's ultimately my, where my passion and mission lies. Right. And, and so you're doing all this stuff in a podcast and all this stuff. This stuff takes a lot of effort. You have to find people to be in your podcast. Like it takes a lot of effort. And why would someone work that hard? Right. Because you're going to make money anyway. I make money. I don't need to work this hard. Um, but you're doing it to fulfill a mission and it's linked to something bigger than yourself. And that's what makes you more successful than others. Um, so, folks, if you could just duplicate, it's not a hard thing to duplicate. You'll change lives. You'll change yourselves. You'll you'll achieve stuff. Um, but know that success takes longer than you have patience for. <laughs> so, 
you know, you're going to have to give yourself grace, but how do you give yourself? And that's why I think maybe we, we don't have to end right this second, but one note to end on is um, if it takes longer to succeed than you have patience for, it's really like, how are you going to deal with two, 18 months to five years of failure? Um, well, I think those who do deal with it, it's because they don't even have a concept of failure. It's like just process an outcome. It's knowledge process that. So, okay, my process isn't there yet. But some processes take 18 months. So if you know up front that it's going to take 18 months to make, to get a perfect foot strike, then settle into 18 months of process, mm-hmm. right? And then you're not failing because it, it literally will take 18 months to create a perfect foot strike. That's just how long it takes if you do it correctly. That's if. <laughs> you may never get there if you don't even try or do it correctly, right? Um, you can't do it in a day, in a week. It's not possible. Mm-hmm. So I think if we just started training each other and talking to each other like that, uh, uh, one quick funny story is uh, one dude, he, he, he kept trying and he'd slip back, right? And he'd, Tim, I'm, I'm a mess again. I slip back. And I, I, I said, dude, six effing years. He goes, whoa, what do you mean? This is, I'm a psychologist, ain't his own. I go, it, it took me six effing years before I lived my best life. Um, meaning like from when I really started, I'm going to live my best life. From that moment when I declared I'm living my best life, it took me six effing years. And you're crying to me after two months that you slipped <laughs> back into the doldrums of your old habits. Give me a break, right? Six effing years. And that became the mantra of our work. All the, every time we, he, we met, he'd be like, I get you. I get you. Six effing years. I get you. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, but now I'm living my best life. It was, a, it was worth it. Mm-hmm. But for folks out there who want their best life in three months, come work with me. You might do it because I figured, you know, <laughs> great. You're, but it didn't, it took me longer to figure it all out, right? That's why we want to get it out there. That's a, that's, that's a long time, six years. Einstein, it took two years of failure to come up with e equals MC squared. You know, two years of a nobody. He was just Albert. He was out, like nobody. He didn't know whether that was going to turn into anything. It could have been a flop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And so can you tell us, what was one of your favorite What's your six effing years that when you, when people say to you, I want this and I want it like next week. Can you think of one that you think this thing took me three months or two years or like, maybe it was a muscle up, but maybe there's another one. I say, no, it's we're, uh, I think we're going on six years on my ring muscle ups to finally like start clicking. <laughs> really? Ring yeah. muscle ups. Ring muscle ups. Oh my, that's even higher it's, level. It's like a six year process in the making, I think. And they're finally, as of like this week, starting to kind of click. So, but yes. Yeah. And for months. other people out there and they're like, I know there's someone out there and they're like, I could have trained her to do that in two months. That's ridiculous. Um, maybe, but she's also running a full-time business and she's doing this. And this is a complex person who didn't just, do that one thing, right? Like, and that's the reality is, that's why I my intro is so long. I'm a single father. Like I'm, I'm doing a hard job where I get called at 2 a.m. to do a suicide assessment. Maybe I could have done some of this stuff more quickly. Maybe it shouldn't have taken six effing years, but I'm also not just doing that. I'm also living and getting pounded by the universe daily. And I'm tired sometimes, right? So yeah, four years for a, a ring muscle up or whatever, like six years or whatever, like that makes sense because you're living. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And that's not failure. That's process. That's knowledge. Mm-hmm. I yeah. love it. You know, and for 
probably the first several years, like I did see it as failure. And now it's like over the past couple of years, I've learned, you know, failure is a good thing. And like, they're just misses. It's just a process. And so now it's just like, I just have lots of practice of how not to do it and how to finally do it right. <laughs> and that's the thing that people get to. What then gets super elite? People who become super elite, right? They've accomplished success in multiple areas. They just start knowing I can do hard things. Mm -hmm. Like I know I can fail for six effing years and make it. I know I can fail for four years and podium. I mean, there's not even a, you know, and when I podium in a 50 plus, the reason I'm so proud of that is one, it took me so long a failure. But at that point, I won that. And it's not like there's a separate elite race going off. And I'm like in the eight, like that was it. I was top dog in the 50 plus. And, you know, the hardest thing to win a 50 plus is to be able to not be injured. Right. <laughs> so it, like it still counts. Like it, it's hard. Right. Your body just changes it after 45. Anyway. Um, but you you. With all your successes, Brianna, it's like, I think you would say, you know, you can do hard things over long periods of time and come out on top. Mm -hmm. And that, that starts to then really super charge you into other directions. And so folks, hold on, wait till you see where Brianna's at 10, five, 10 years from now, because you're going <laughs> to knock off multiple successes because multiple years of failure won't intimidate you. Am I right? absolutely absolutely anything else you want to say about that like get it, <laughs> let us get in your psyche a minute you talk a little bit about like there's this other thing and you know you know what I mean like what does that sound like in your head that multiple years of failure doesn't intimidate you anymore you know or when did that start taking place you know the first thing that comes to mind is like just running a business it's not like I feel like everyone starts a business it's like in a year I'm gonna be like highly successful I'm like I'm five freaking years into this and I'm still not highly successful. And like, it is just, it's, and then it's finding those people and those coaches who know more than I do can help me with the systems and the processes and doing all the things. Um, but yeah, like that's the other one, like the, the big one, I guess, um, in my life is just like how many times I have like had ideas that failed, that flopped, that did nothing with my business and just kind of then it's like back to the drawing board and let's figure out the next, the next thing. I love it. Yeah. And that's, that's it. And that, that's tough. <laughs> but if you frame it as failure, I, I just get the, get that word out of everyone's lexicon. Mm -hmm. It's process. It, there is no such thing. You know, I've heard many times there's no failure. There's only feedback, but in the context, I've always heard that it, it, they never told you feedback for what. So you, I think you just default back to feedback for you suck. <laughs> you know what I mean? You got to tell people feedback for what it's feedback. You lack knowledge. Therefore your process wasn't tight. And so when someone beats me, I just bow to them. Namaste. I bow to you. You know, more, you had a better process and good for you. You had a better outcome today but I'm going to go back and I'm going to study my ass off to make sure you never know more than me again so that I have, you never have a better process than me mm -hmm. so that the outcome doesn't look like this again. Right. Absolutely. Um, so the agency is always on us, but it's in, in ending it's like, but you can't have agency if you're listening to the story of what we've been. You can only have agency if you are listening to the story or who you're becoming. And that that's huge. And don't forget to link it to, you know, something bigger than yourself. Awesome. Um, ego trips don't get us anywhere. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. They do a little bit, but they'll ultimately fail. Mm -hmm. Well, let's close it out. If someone wants to reach out to you, just follow you, ask you any questions, where can they find you at? Yeah, if you want to put in the notes, uh, my cell, um, and my cell is available on the web, so I don't mind uh, if you put that in the notes. My Instagram is there. Uh, I think it's Tim Sylvester. I don't even know. <laughs> uh, anyways, or my, and my, uh, my email is timothysylvestri at gmail. Um, I think 
my Instagram might be Timothy Silvestri too. I'm terrible at that. I'll have to email you to you. Um, but yeah, we started posting more now on Instagram. So before it was pretty limited, but we're putting out a post every, uh, at least two a week moving forward. And so there's some really good stuff on there. It, uh, I think it's a, a low hanging fruit to just get some quick coaching in your week is to friend me on Instagram and, and you're guaranteed to get two, I think really kick-ass coaching techniques that they'll stay with you. You'll see they're, they're neurophysiologically based and they're pretty impactful. Awesome. We're proud of them. Awesome. Well, Tim, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Brianne. I really hope you enjoyed that episode today. Before I close out, I want to talk to you about my eight week return to running program. If you've been off running for a period of time, just because life's gone the best of you, or maybe you've been injured and had to take some time off, returning to running properly is key. Meaning don't ramp up too fast, too soon, or you're just setting yourself up for injury or perhaps re-injury. That's why I created this eight week return to running program. It ramps you up properly and safely so you can minimize that risk of injury as you return to running. So head over to getyourfixpt.com slash courses to check out my eight week return to running program, as well as all of my other online programs. Thank you again for tuning in today. And until next time, let's go out and be highly functional.